Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Well, you guys, the time has come. Yes, uh, so uh, Behind the Curtain is uh, going to go off the air. What? April Fools! Kevin, you made my heart leap faster than Gwen Verdon in Redhead. (laughs) Richard Kiley for me. Okay. Look who's in love. Sorry. You guys, we aren't going anywhere. And in order to ensure that, friends, we need your help. Our podcast is entirely self-produced. And like I said, we need your help. If you can, our little Easter eggs, head on over to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search for Behind the Curtains Broadway Living Living Legends, I think I know the title of the show, and set a monthly donation. Even a dollar a month helps us. Your contributions help us continue doing what we are doing and bringing the legend stories to your ears. Have a great June. April. April. Thank you. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes, old and new, on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. How can you not love today's performer? We have been wanting to get her on the show for a long time, so I am very excited. We have all thrilled to her stirring sounds on the original cast recordings of In Trousers, The Secret Garden, First Daughter Suite, and a personal favorite of mine, Romance Romance. Oh, yes. In addition to her incredible musical theater career, today's guest has brought to life the words of such playwrights as Terrence McNally, Charles Bush, Tennessee Williams, David Ives, and so many more. To tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Marianne Seldes, Bill Finn, Arthur Lawrence, and of course, Rusty McGee, here is two-time Tony nominee and everyone's favorite, Miss Allison Frazier. Allison, how are you today? Well, I'm as good as can be expected. Oh, yeah. Uh, quarantine. Um, I, I'm actually in a very lovely place. I, I live with my boyfriend, Dr. Steve Pavlakis, in a nice brownstone in Warham Hill. Uh, Good. Yeah, so I do have a little backyard to putter around in, and I, I dig up rocks and put them back in, and, or tell Steve where to put the rocks. <laughs> <in>. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's off when he comes back from the hospital, like Karen's in Oh, bless him. Is he on the front lines with all this stuff? Well, he's a pediatric neurologist. Um, okay. He's not really in the thick of the COVID uh, treatment, but there are a lot of COVID patients at the hospital. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, a scary time, and bless him for doing that. But that, it's really nice to connect with people. How are you finding online teaching? Are you, in, are you enjoying it? What, is there a big learning curve? How does that work? There are definitely drawbacks, but there are also lovely surprises. For example, I'm seeing things in students that I had never really seen in the classroom because I, I'm concentrating so much on just their faces. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Yeah, because usually we have, whole, you know, the whole body and, you know, they're doing a lot of performance. and and uh, But but this, it, 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 there's a lot more interiority, I would say. Mm-hmm. And so I'm encouraging that very much. And yeah. I'm giving them self self taping hands. Actually, they should probably give them to me. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I read this wonderful article um, about Larry David in quarantine, and apparently, 
it's his dream. <laughs> you know, yeah. Really yeah, I saw that too. That was hysterical. <laughs> he he like really good tips about uh, how to look good. So even though this is on audio, I did doll up for you. And she, oh yes, <laughs> Allison tip? looks absolutely stunning. I'm going to try to describe this to our listeners. She's wearing a sleeveless. Uh, it looks like a V-neck red, like a like a like a Nancy Reagan red, and we'll talk about Nancy Reagan a little bit. <laughs> very very <laughs> first daughter suite of you, very, very first daughter suite, and looks absolutely stunning. So actually, now speaking of acting and, and acting classes, Allison, where did you receive your training from? Well, I, I think it's kind of the school of hard knocks because I, I I have been um, at Carnegie Mellon and I didn't like it at all. And then I went to the Boston Conservatory of Music and that really didn't work out for me either. So I quit school uh, for good after two years and I came to New York. And at that point I started working with Bill Finn. Actually, I was working with Bill Finn when I was still in high school. Uh, he was out of uh, high school by the time I got into high school, but he heard me singing in one of the school plays. And then he asked me to start uh, singing with him and another girl named Joan Bartels. And we had like this uh, strange little folk pop combo. And we would uh, perform his rock songs at, you know, every synagogue in town and the <laughs> town gazebo and that sort of thing. Yeah. So um, after I quit the Boston Conservatory of Music, I came to New York and started working with Bill Finn. So I would call it the College of Bill. And uh, that's when we started working with uh, Mary Testa, and we started singing the song canon that would become In Trousers. And mm -hmm. then, of course, that continued on to uh, March the Falsettos and Falsettoland. Amazing. And now, where did you grow up? Where, where, where did you grow up specifically? I grew up in Natick, Massachusetts. And in Natick. Too. Uh, yeah, but continuing on with the education, after my husband, Rusty, died in 2003, I decided to go back to school. And Amazing. Fordham. And uh, I mean, I went to Fordham in yeah. adult learning um, uh, school and I, I loved it. I, I got my degree actually in English literature, but the dean of the theater at that time was a man named Matthew McGuire. And he uh, gave me my um, uh, secondary uh, major in theater, even Fantastic. though I did classes, it was awesome. He said, "You know, you can teach," and then he actually asked me to. Wow! Uh, so I've been teaching there for ten years. Yeah. <sighs> That is right. absolutely incredible. But, you know, yeah. a lot of people say by by teaching, you know, you learn about yourself. What have you learned That's about? Good. What have you really learned about your craft or yourself that you've discovered in the classroom while teaching? Well, I have to say, my kids are just amazing. Uh, they are so game and so well prepared and so eager to be good that I think that the the best thing you can do is is something that Joe Papp said, I think, which is allow yourself to fail. Mm -hmm. I mean, go, go as far as you possibly can. And, and maybe it's even in the wrong direction, but allow yourself to make mistakes. I always tell directors that you know are directing me, I'm going to get it wrong 10 times before I get it right, but I won't know that it's right until I'm allowed to get things wrong. So don't be scared. I am going to get there. But... Let me let me stumble. Let me challenge myself, and maybe it'll be wrong, but maybe it will be very, very right. It's incredible. 
absolutely yeah. incredible. So I like allow my students to take chances. Mm-hmm. And it sounds risks. like you, you create a very safe classroom environment for that to happen. I'm so curious, on, on a first day of class where everybody is a relative stranger to one another, how do you, you've only got about, what, 15 weeks in a semester, so you've got a pretty rapid rate to turn over that trust system. How do you develop trust between you and your students in such an immediate amount of time? Well, we find uh, out on the first day, people you know, talk about who they are, where they're from, what they're looking for in the class, what they think their level of talent is, oh. uh, what their experience is in, in singing. And in my class, it's called Song as Scene, and it's very much the type of singing I like to do, which I call conversational singing, mm-hmm. singing rather than you know, like the Jim Neighbors style of singing, yeah. where, you know, golly, and then all of a sudden you sing an opera. Uh, I, really, I like um, I like to sing the way I like to hear people singing the way they talk, and I say things like sing in sentences. And we do have uh, several games that we play, and one of them is very important, and it's uh, to toss the ball, which is basically we'll take one song. Um, I think this year it was actually many years. It's uh, Nothing Can Stop Me Now by uh, Anthony Newley and Leslie Griffiths. I think it's a wonderful anthem. It's a very uh, catchy tune and it's a, a, a very positive message. And everybody has to learn that song. That's our class song. And then we have a, a game where it's like, stand well back, I'm coming through. Nothing can stop me now. Where each phrase is tossed to another person at the very last second and you're not allowed to point you just have to go obviously your listeners are going to have to picture this in their head but you're basically tossing the song off to your fellow student who had better pick up that ball and carry it and then in turn uh, pass it off to the next student and it's a lot of fun and sometimes we do it syllable by syllable Oh, wow. That's a really fantastic. It's a a real good game. I love that. I love that. When you were going to, uh, you said uh, Carnegie Mellon, right? Carnegie Mellon first, and then you transferred over to the Boston Conservatory. Was there something about the the training that just wasn't responding for you? Or did you feel that you had much more to offer than being in a classroom at that moment? What, what do you, because a lot of our, a lot of our listeners are students and that is something that they struggle with, which they might not be feeling fulfilled in their theater programs and just don't know what to do next. Well, at the time I felt that Carnegie Mellon was pretty draconian in that it would not allow people uh, to be on stage for their first two years there, unless you were, you know, oh. like a, an extra or something. And there were two years. Of, wow. A lot of backstage. And we're talking many, many years ago. Yeah. Uh, it might've changed by now. I mean, obviously great people come out of Carnegie Mellon, but when I was there, it was going through some tumult. I believe they had just lost um, one of their deans, Lloyd Richards, who just, who oh, yeah. just Yale. And I think that uh, their, department was in a little bit of flux and I had come from a very very sophisticated uh, theater program in my high school um, uh, run by a guy named Jerry Dyer who you know also was a a big influence on Bill Finn and we had a wonderful theater program and uh, because Jerry Dyer was also the um, uh, head of the drama not drama club, the competitive speech club, the National Forensic League. Um, we, um, I, I was the, I was the president of that club for two years, 
And I worked hand in hand with Jerry Dyer to cast a lot of shows, to put together the huge shows that we used to do. A hundred kids would be involved, all the cheerleaders, the football players, and the the dramats and the musicians. It was a a real uh, coming together of a lot of people in this massive, massive event. And uh, Bill Finn did one called 70 Now, I believe. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. But as a result, I I had a lot of power in high school. Um, I would choose what kids were going to be doing poetry readings, what kids were going to be doing dramatic inter, um, who's going to be the best um, extemporaneous speakers, uh, who should sing Rubber Ducky in the big, uh, you know, all school review. Um, and that wound up being a guy on the football team. And, you know, he was wheeled in in a bathtub. And it was, it was kind of fun. So I, because I had worked so closely with Jerry Dyer, he gave me a lot of leads in shows. Like I was Roxanne in Cyrano. I was uh, Lucy in, in Dracula. And Dracula was done in our planetarium. And it was just, it was a wild... High school, wow. High school, it's gone now, sadly, because the, uh, the old high school was torn down. But we had this magnificent planetarium run by a genius named Ed Jameson. And you could actually... It had a mesh dome and you could build platforms and light somebody behind the mesh dome. So you could have Dracula floating in, in the sky. It's cool. You know, it's so cool. Behind the mesh. And you could also, I'm sure this was illegal, but you, the, um, the planetarium could achieve pitch black. So what Jerry Dyer, you know, and Dracula's a pretty scary play anyway, but what he would do is he, to scare the kids, after Dracula, you know, lit in green, you know, floating uh, above the dome, uh, after he uh, disappeared, uh, Jerry put the lights down to pitch black and he had kids have, have uh, strips of wet leather hung from a pole and then he would have the kids like uh, bring the, uh, the the wet leather over the kids in pitch black so it felt like slime slimy slugs were crawling on a fun high school nope, nope. Screaming, screaming it was amazing that would have scared me no thank you wow yeah, it's beautiful though so this you, was, oh, oh sorry go ahead no go ahead please go ahead sorry I'm just saying the planetarium was super special to do shows in. So I had come from a very sophisticated uh, theater background, and I just felt like I had to get back on stage and and that what I was doing was a lot of building sets. And, you know, I was ripping uh, pieces of plywood on a, you know, a saw, a table saw, I was uh, taking the nails, rusty nails, out of old windows for the production of Three Penny Opera that was happening in hundreds of of old windows. And I'm like, this isn't what I want to do. This isn't what I want to do. So I went home and uh, I regrouped. And then I went to Boston Conservatory. And again, I didn't find the program particularly stimulating. Again, I understand it's fabulous now. I mean, Nick Adams went there and look at his career. Um, But... It wasn't for me, but I do think that my time with Billy Finn 
the first few years I was here was invaluable, uh, teaching me how to sing in my odd way, uh, teaching me how to do the vocal harmonies that ultimately wound up on falsettos and uh, and in trousers. How, I'm sorry, how did you first meet Bill Finn? Well, again, he was in college by the time I was in high school, but he came back to see the big uh, shows. Billy came to see it, and I was singing something wildly inappropriate. Uh, I was singing Stormy Weather. I you know, it's like, you want to see this chirpy little 15-year-old singing Stormy Weather? You know, I teach my students, I'm like, make sure you're singing a song that, I don't want to say age-appropriate, but I don't really want to hear a 15-year-old singing losing my mind or mad about them. There are just, there are certain songs that require a little bit of life experience. And I believe this story weather is one of them. But uh, he just got tickled by the uh, odd timbre of my voice. And he called me up and I didn't believe it was him because he was a legend in our high school. Uh, But he convinced me that it was him. And then we started singing our songs, our pop rock songs together. Yeah, it's fun. That's incredible. Now, uh, you've had such a long, fruitful collaboration with him. What do you enjoy about being in a room with him for so many years? What what keeps making you go back? Well, of course, it was his uh, original voice. I mean, I love his singing voice. I actually asked him to do a duet with me on my second album, uh, and that's uh, the song, The Passionate Broda, yeah. which is one of the songs that we sang uh, back Back in the synagogues. And that's where I learned how to do the descants and, and the odd discordant harmonies that he he liked. I just heard something different in um, his music that I had never heard before in the more traditional music that I was listening to, like, you know, uh, James Taylor and Linda sure. Ronstadt and, you know, the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Elvis um, Costello? Don't you like Elvis Costello? Uh, I read that. Yes. Uh, I actually did his song on Men in My Life, too. Mm-hmm. I did uh, Every Day I Write. And, and actually, a lot of Elvis Costello stuff reminds me of early Billy Flynn stuff. I think he has that kind of original. Quirky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, original sound. And, you know, of course, Rusty McGee to um, uh, and another playwright that I work with quite often is Aaron Mark. And I, I, I like to ally myself with um, original talents like Aaron Mark, like Rusty McGee, like um, uh, Charles Bush, um, like Bill Finn, obviously, and uh, Barry Harmon. Uh, and Keith oh, Harris. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I'm not a person that, you know, they're doing guys and dolls. Oh, they want you to do Adelaide. I, I don't always fit into those revivals that are happening. I was lucky to, I was lucky I didn't audition for Gypsy because I probably wouldn't have gotten the part. But Arthur just asked me to do it, which is great. I'm like, no, really? You really think I'm a Jesse Turner? Oh, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> so I, I, I'm just not particularly drawn to that. Um, yeah, uh, the re- revival scene. Uh, that's not to say it's not great. And hey, I'd love to if somebody wants me. But um, it just I, I I like to originate material. Mm. Um, I like to put my stamp on it. I, I really do think that a part of your soul is in anything you've ever originated. And you know, I I have people 
you know, hashtag me as original Trina. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's like, I think that's a real badge of honor. I, I do, especially now that so many kids are listening to uh, Entrasters. I, out of curiosity, I, I just listened to it the other day, and it really is kind of amazing. Gore, so when you when you left Boston, um, was your first call? I mean, did you go right back to New York City and said, "Let me give this a try," or did you did you stay in the Massachusetts area for well, a little bit? I didn't, no, no. I, you know, oddly enough, I I think I, I, I've worked in Western Massachusetts a lot, but I think last fall was uh, or was it last summer? I was at the Cape Playhouse doing. One of my favorite shows is Death Trap, and I got to do Helga for Marsha Milligram Dodge, and oh my God, I had such a good time doing that. <laughs> oh, it's such a good play. That's the first time I think I've worked on uh, the East Coast of of uh, Massachusetts. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I've never worked in Boston. Um, no, I came to, right to New York because I, I was doing a very odd show called, uh, what was it called? Uh, Lewis and Clark. Lost and Found, a Bicentennial Extravaganza. Of course. And okay. Arthur Cobit was putting together a group of like improv actors, like Barry Primus, Raul Julia, um, really some wonderful people. And they were having auditions for it. And I heard about this from somebody that I was at the Boston Conservative Music Group. And I, I said, yeah, I'll drive you down. And she said, you should audition too. And I'm like, all right. So I, I did a, um, a monologue from the ruling class, the stripper monologue from the ruling class. But I did it while doing an acrobatic routine because I was an acrobat as a kid. So I did this Cockney, you know, wonderful Cockney monologue while I was doing like back walkovers and chest rolls and splits and dead frogs, you know, that's when you, you have a, a, your legs are out to your sides and then you can put your chest on the floor. And it's, I was a good acrobat and uh, I got the part and the other girl didn't. So she was <laughs> but it was a really um, fantastic experience. And I met a man there named Peter Gilblum. And we became boyfriend and girlfriend. And he said, let's go to New York. And we did. And we got an apartment for like $210 um, uh, a month. And we split it with his brother, uh, the late, the great uh, Seth Gelblum, who grew up to be uh, one of the most important uh, entertainment lawyers in the country. He was consistently on the top 100 list of most influential people in theater. So that's how I got to New York. And that's so when you were uh, when you were making the rounds and going to auditions and stuff, do you remember what your go-to audition song was? People love hearing those kinds of things. But... You know, I, I always say, I, I teach something called the anarchy of song, and that is take a song and make it your own. And I believe one of my successful songs was you must have been a beautiful baby, done as a really sexy ballad. You must have been a beautiful baby. You must have been a wonderful child. You know, and it was really sexy. So I guess that's that got me a couple of jobs. But really, the first couple of years I was in New York, I did not audition a lot. I sort of 
hitched my wagon to the rising star that was Bill Finn. And I also had to have a, you know, a day job to uh, support myself. I think I worked at the New York Health and Racquet Club as a, a, a trainer, you know. And you, yeah, sure. And, and were you guys like, would you get together and jam? And he's like, I got some songs. And you were like, all right, let me sing them. And, you know. Yeah, come over. Yeah, Mary's coming over. We're going we're gonna to do some songs. Yes, um, oftentimes it would be late at night and it was dangerous on the Upper West Side. Billy lived at West 98th Street and Broadway. And I oh, lived, yeah. Yeah, I lived at 82nd Street and Broadway. Um, and it was a very, very dangerous uh, neighborhood. I had been mugged at uh, a fellow, um, held a straight oh. blade right up against my neck. I still have a tiny little scar on my arms and, uh, uh, and one right here on my neck. Um, but it's really frightening. And my, one of my favorite stories is, I don't know if you can, I'm gonna be able to, you're probably gonna bleep this out, but Mary and I were walking uh, late at night uh, down Broadway. She, she was gonna walk me home and then take the, uh, the express a stop, uh, an express subway down to where she lived in the village where she still lives. And the, I see this little old man, you know, on a, on a walker and he is trying to get through these the very big glass um, doors of a, it looks like an SRO or at, at the time it looked like an SRO hotel. Um, and he was struggling to get through these, like on 86th Street, these doors. And um, Mary said, I'm going to help him. And, and I said, Mary, no, no, we, we can't talk to strangers. We have to, we have to go. We have to go. And uh, she, uh, she said, oh, oh, please, Allison, don't be such a baby. And she, she um, opened the door, the door uh, one side of the door so he could get through. And she said, he said, she said, um, can, I, can I help you, sir? And he came through the door and he, he kind of stuck his nose in her face and said, yeah, give me some pussy. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> she learned a big lesson that night. My God. <laughs> um, but it was thrilling working with Bill because he, you know, I, I, his music spoke to me, sang to me. And, uh, you know, it's really thrilling to hear the harmonies that I came up with. You know, like I was at the opening night of the Broadway version, you know, the Broadway revival, and it was, it was just thrilling to go, oh, when they sang that, life's a sham and every move is wrong, we examine every move as we move along. It's like, I did that. <laughs> I did that. That's really cool. I was wondering how the, that, that credit got on IBDB, because I, I saw vocal arrangements by. Yeah, I did. And, yeah, I did. Yeah. So cool. Yeah, and, and trousers too, and Mary did a lot too. So that was, was So can you tell us a little bit about what was it like in that in trousers experience? I mean, it was you and I'm assuming a collection of his friends just working together, right? Well, I, I'm not even going to call us friends. I mean, he just loved Mary's voice and he loved my voice. And then he loved a woman's voice and... Kate Pesek, but she did not continue on with the project because she had moved to Chicago to be, I think, with her, uh, she got engaged and she moved to Chicago. So then there were a few different uh, uh, high school sweethearts 
And then, of course, Joanna Green was the one that wound up doing the off-Broadway version. Um, but it was wild, you know, because, of course, the first version of In Trousers was, it was Billy. I mean, he was Marvin. Yeah. And uh, it's so funny because these kids that do the, the art artwork for In Trousers, they, now they're, you know, I, I follow them. And I'm like, of course, I want to see all this stuff. And they asked me about about the clothes and you know the first version of in trousers, I had this wacky set of pajamas, which was like a, a huge uh, set of men's pajamas in like it was sort of silky satin, red and white stripes, like you know, Waldo. And uh, you know, and I think it was vertical stripes. And uh, Billy wore that pajama top and I wore the pajama bottoms stuffed into, you know, like 70s boots. <laughs> and I think I had a, a, a Hawaiian shirt. I mean, it was really a wild look, you know? So that was fun. But it was constantly changing. Uh, it was very amorphous. And then it wasn't until really... Uh, uh, Billy directed the first version with... Um, Chip Zion. But then when we did March of the Falsettos, he brought Jim Lapine aboard. Mm. I think that Jim was a friend of his. Uh, or maybe maybe Jim was a friend of Andre's. I, I'm not sure how Jim and Billy met, but they clicked like gangbusters. And I was lucky enough to stay with the project. Um, but then they uh, Chip switched to the part of Mendel, who had been played by Lonnie Price in uh, another version of uh, Falsetto's called Four Jews in a Room Bitching. Right. And, uh, but then it all came together uh, under Jim Lapine's uh, direction. When you were doing In Trousers Off-Broadway, did you know that it was going to re be received so well? Or did you just think, oh, this is fun and, you know... It'll, it'll have a small following. I, I don't think any of us were prepared for what happened. I mean, it was a phenomenon. Can you and walk us through what that was like? It's absolutely amazing because, you know, in trousers had famously not gotten a particularly good review in the Times. And I thought that was terribly unfair because I think, to this day, I think in trousers is by far the best work Billy's ever done. I, I really do. That's not to negate anything else. I just, it appeals to me because it's an abstract fever dream. I just find it so original and so scary and, and funny. Uh, I, I think it's a wonderful piece. But, you know, we were in the little theater and it was only 60 people that could come in and people would go nuts over it. They loved it. But then one of those people happened to be uh, Frank Rich. And Frank Rich basically took the crown that had been on Stephen Sondheim's, Sondheim's head. You know, Miss, you take this, the crown from one Miss America and go to another one. It doesn't negate the first Miss America, but, you know, that crown was passed to, to Billy Finn the next day. And uh, uh, Leonard Bernstein was online looking for tickets in Chaucer's. I mean, it was shocking. And then the people that came in, it's like everybody came to see it. it, it not in Chaucer's, um, uh, March of the Falsettos. Mm -hmm. uh, because again, uh, Frank Rich did not give in Chaucer's a particularly uh, great review. As a matter of fact, it was 
not, it was not a good review, uh, but March of the Falsettos was a rave, mostly for Bill. Yeah. Mostly for Bill. Do you read reviews? I do. I don't mind reading reviews. I, my rule is I'll read the good ones and I'll read the bad ones. And, you know, near the twain will meet, you know, you kind of have to <laughs> kind of go in the middle of something. Yeah. Okay. But I, I think you can always learn something from a bad review mm-hmm. or a bad comment um, on, you know, a, a theater gossip site. If one person doesn't understand me, I up my game as far as enunciation is concerned. I do. Um, if one person thinks, oh, she was pitchy, I'm like, jeepers, I better watch that. So I think that there's a lot to be learned. I do. There's probably more to be learned from bad reviews than from good reviews, to tell you the truth. It's a fabulous outlook yeah. on that. Absolutely fabulous. Now, so f- falsettos and in trousers is I, ever since the revival. It seems it's now reaching to a, a younger generation, which is great. And there's so many productions of it popping up at colleges and universities. So, for anyone who's going to play Trina at some point, what advice do you have for them in bringing this beautiful character to life? Well, you know, my Trina was very, very different than the Trina that wound up on Broadway. My Trina was very dark. My Trina was. Uh, a very, I, I think, psychologically and, well, let's let's face it, physically abused person. I mean, is that the first time Trina gets slapped? I don't know. And in the original version of him, you know, in trousers, obviously, Marvin's ex-wife is Trina. Um, she was much younger. She had uh, toddlers. She had two kids. Uh, and, you know, not many people know this, but she killed herself. Um, so what I would say is, even though that does not, of course, happen in uh, falsettos and March of the Falsettos and Falsetto Land, and I'm glad it doesn't happen because it's very, very dark. Um, I think that you have to find the darkness, even though it's a very funny part. Uh, you know, I used to get laughs, you know, putting a, a turnable will be hanging from a chandelier. I, I would take the telephone wire and put it around my neck and pretend to hang myself. You know, there were, there was a lot of darkness and um, that's, I, I would not go for the comedy. I would go for the darkness and then trust that the comedy will be there. Do you have any desire for yourself to direct at any point? You know, a lot of people have asked me that. And I just think that there are people that are so much better at it than I could ever be, like Marsha Milgram Dodge. You know, she's, to me, she's my ideal director because she casts impeccably and then trusts her actors. And, and then what I can do is, what I do really well is get into the meat of a character and protect my character. And when I'm originating a role, I am fierce about protecting that character so that I can, you know, take that Miss America crown and give it to the next um, person playing romance, you know, Monica and Josephine in Romance Romance and say, you have a really good starting point here because Barry Harmon was smart enough to trust me with his material, his and Keith's material. And I think that's my strength. Now, as I get older and the parts dry up, who knows? Who knows? 
maybe, maybe I'll go, okay, if I get a really good um, crew, if I get a set designer who can support me, a lighting designer who can support me, um, uh, somebody who can do the things that I, I'm not necessarily versed in. I mean, the wonderful thing about Marsha is she can do everything and, and then she hires the very best people. Um, I, I direct, obviously, in my Fordham class, um, but when you have an, a, a director like, for example, Aaron Mark, uh, the author of Squeamish and uh, Dear, he wrote those two pieces for me, and Empanada Loca and uh, Another Medea. Uh, Squeamish is actually going to be reduced as an audio uh, play on pandemic productions. I believe that's happening in uh, about a week, which is just thrilling. Wow. Yeah, would you, would you tell us a little yeah. bit about that, please? Well, I had been working with uh, the brilliant, brilliant um, Aaron Mark for years. Uh, about eight, eight or nine years ago, he called me up and said, I, I wrote a part for you in a movie. And I'm like, who, who are you? And, and then I realized he had been the assistant director to Ben Rimmelauer on a reading. I did a wonderful show called Sunfish. And um, by Ye Young, uh, Michael Cooper and Ye Young Kim, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful piece. Uh, but he sent me this uh, wonderful movie called Commentary, and he had written a part opposite him. And it was a very auteur piece. You know, he played a you know a writer, uh, an angst-filled writer, and I was just this vicious uh, uh, actress, <laughs> very <laughs> passive-aggressive, and, and it was so much fun and so well written. And he said, you know, it'll take you, I think, two days in, in the studio. Or maybe it was three. And he said, could we have a rehearsal beforehand? I'm like, a rehearsal? That's a huge part. Can we have eight rehearsals? <laughs> and apparently I was the only one that asked for more rehearsals. And because um, I'm a rehearsal fiend. I mean, again, got to get wrong eight times before you get it right the ninth. And we became so such good friends during those rehearsals and also we were very very good together um in the movie hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. And he started writing for me. Wow. And he wrote some short plays. And then, uh, you know, I, I had a pretty good dramaturgical uh, mm-hmm. ear. And he would listen to me when I would say, you know, not for nothing, but I kind of think you should switch this ending. And uh, I, I believe the ending of commentary was changed to end with um, Tom Hewitt because I just said that uh, that should be the last, you know, little vignette. And then Aaron should come back in at the very end. Uh, so he listens to me and he trusts me. And um, uh, what happened was he wrote me this magnificent piece that is – I. I think it has a lot of autobiographical elements for Aaron, not necessarily literally, but certainly thematically. And I think it was a great gift to me 
um, for not only supporting him and his art, his writing, but also as a person and becoming the great, becoming great friends with him. And I think it was, it's just the most wonderful gift I've ever had, this magnificent um, aria. Um, uh, it's a, an hour and a half of just me. And, you know, the way we worked on it for over two years before it finally uh, came to the stage was he'd just come over and we'd go over uh, certain parts of it and, and uh, then he would rewrite to suit my voice and, and many people seeing that show thought that it was improv because it just was so natural and uh, because he, he has such an excellent ear. So you love being involved from the ground up, from, from idea all the, all the way through execution. I, I, I do. I really like it. And, you know, I loved working with Terrence McNally on dedication of the stuff of names with, you know, Nathan and, and uh, Marin Seldes. And uh, it was difficult uh, working with Nathan. I, I don't think that he was happy on the project. And some nights he was like really great to me. And some nights he was like, oh, he doesn't like me tonight. And uh, uh, the beginning of that play, which is, I like that play a lot. And uh, Terrence was great during it. I loved him. Uh, yeah, may he rest in peace. But the beginning of the play was, I believe, six minutes in darkness, like no lights, because it takes place in a, a an old theater. Mm -hmm. And uh, until uh, the character that Nathan played, uh, what, Jesse? Was his name Jesse? Yeah. No, maybe Jesse was my name in it. Um, he finds the breaker to put the electricity on. We There was an open trap door in the middle of the stage, six feet. There was a trap door that went down six feet. And the gag was that when the lights came back on, my feet were right at the edge of the, uh, of the trap door. So it was, it was incredibly dangerous. And I think somehow, were his feet on that trap? I don't know. I, all I remember is I was right at the edge in pitch black of a six foot drop. A real oh trap door, God. like it was real. And the trap door was open. It was open. No. And that was a great analogy for you know, the whole experience. Because it was like, I, I, I was always walking on eggshells around him. And uh, uh, later on, uh, after that um, show was over and he came to see me in Gypsy, he was actually very complimentary and very nice. And um, I think that when he came to see uh, Divine Sister, he invited you know, me out for dinner with the cast and it was really nice. Uh, so we're fun. But the upside of that uh, show was that I got to be very good friends with Marion Seldes. Tell us, tell us oh, about her. Please. Legend. What, what was it like with her? Well, she's a she's a lovely, lovely woman, and but again, it was a it was a difficult it was a difficult atmosphere. It was a difficult yeah. atmosphere, and I worried about her because, of course, she was so frail, and um, she wouldn't eat. And finally, I you know I I love scones. I love to do carbs before a show, and I had I love chocolate chip scones. You know, and I had a scone and. 
I just looked at her and I said, would you like some of this? Because she was sitting next to me. And she said, yes. And, she was, <laughs> and, and I gave her half of my scone. And it became a ritual that every night I had to say, would you like some of this? And she would eat it. And I, I like to think that it helped, it helped give her energy. I it love that. Hey, podcast listeners, are you looking for a place to rehearse in New York City that is clean, spacious, and most importantly, affordable? Come check out Shetler Studios and Theaters, our wonderful host for these podcasts. Shetler is centrally located on West 54th Street between Broadway and 8th Avenue, right in the heart of the theater district. Right in the heart, you'll find music, dance, and acting studios, complemented by two black box theaters and six presentation venues. The professional facilities, inspired environment, and expert industry staff combined to provide the New York artist with an unparalleled studio experience. Visit their website at shetlerstudios.com. That's S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. Shetler Studios and Theaters is our home for recording the legends of Broadway, and we hope that you make it your artistic home too. That's Shetler, S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. See you here. I have to ask you about one of my favorite shows, and that's Romance, Romance. That's one of my favorite shows, too. Ah, I love it. I wanted to come back at some point. I just think it's such a beautiful, gorgeous score. How did you first get involved with this show? You know, I went to to an audition. And the funny thing is, is this is another lesson that I give my kids. Don't second-guess yourself, because I initially initially turned it down because it was a soprano part. And I said, Robert, Robert Edmund, who's now, uh, God, doesn't, isn't he one of the owners over at Abrams now or president or something? Uh, Bob Edmund was my agent at the time and uh, at the old Ambrosio Mortimer uh, agency. And he said, why don't you just go? And it turned out that I was the unusual type that Barry Harmon was looking for. And uh, they tailored the music for me. You know, she's supposed to be a soprano in that first act. And she's supposed to go up to like, I think a high high C, Mm -hmm. goodbye meal. And, you know, they rewrote it. So I didn't have to. And, uh, And as a result, Keith really tailored that music to my peculiar voice. And like sometimes I'm taking the, the low harmony and Scott's taking the high harmony. And, you know, I did that with um, Steve Bogardis uh, when we were doing harmonies for um, uh, falsetto. Uh, March of the falsetto is like, if you notice, we had fights and games. Marvin called us funny names. Marvin always played the clown. I, he, Steve is in falsetto singing above me. <laughs> and it's such an unusual yeah. sound and of course his voice can go anywhere and it was really, oh. it was really an interesting choice and so we did we did a little bit of that switching for me and because uh, my voice is very sort of particular and uh, it was a wonderful experience to have this delicious piece absolutely tailor-made 
for me. When 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 a character is 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 given to you, do you go outside in or inside out, or do you have like a methodology? Is everything different depending on role you're playing? For me, it is very very uh, caught up in what she looks like and what she sounds like. It really, and then then I definitely get into the. Uh, I definitely get into the um, uh, the psychology of it, but I got to tell you, like this show that I just did, Paradise Lost. You know, I originated the role of death, and it's like not death. Um, uh, what was I? Sin. I was sin. Oh, oh. what would better look like? And as soon as I saw what the brilliant costume designer had had in store for me, which was you know this. She sort of looked like a a, a winch from the, like a Hogarth print, and she had like a a leather corset and um, you know leather you know gauntlets, and then this huge skirt of rags but covered with intestines. And then I said, "Oh my God, I love this!" And then she gave me this huge like 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 uh, a, a black wig with red and blue in it. You know, uh, sort of looked like. Um, uh, the the monsters uh, Lily from the monsters oh, that's great. All, all all teased out and then I said I said to the director uh, Michael Parva could I have syphilisaurus and he said yeah that's a great idea <laughs> but if you look at these pictures I mean you see me with these syphilisaurus all over my chest and one side of my face and it's like that's what sin looks like <laughs> yeah. I, I love them. Yeah. So you're outside in. You're outside in. I love yeah, that. I think that might sound a little shallow, but um, as soon as I see what that costume is, and I'm very hands-on in costume fittings, you know, and, and I get I get good ideas, and uh, a lot of yeah. times you're implemented, and uh, you know, like as soon as I got into that bathing suit. For Nancy Reagan, for a brilliant Michael John McKenzie's first lady scene. Okay, very brilliant. Like oh, that was one of my. We we did a, a decade wrap up um, a, a while ago, and we were talking about our top three favorite productions of the decade. That was on my top three. That production was so brilliant. What what was that experience like? Again, it was a difficult experience. You're going to go, God, you're always having difficult No, 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 no. It's... I do think no. it's a, it, it, there's something about me that I, I get really obsessive. And you're passionate. You're a passionate person, I'm we passionate. can tell. Yep. I'm also very obsessive, and I'm also um, sort of scared about um, choreography. I mean, I get it ultimately, but it's, it takes me a while to do it. And when I was Betty Ford, I thought I was just going to be improving dances because that's what my audition was. <laughs> and, and then I realized, oh my God, Chase Brock is choreographing. And, you know, he would send me, I, I love Chase Brock with like a white hot passion. Uh, I, you know, he gave me all these vernacular uh, dance clips to study because uh, apparently Betty Ford had been a um, a dancer for Martha Graham, like really. So I was having to study and, and be good at Martha Graham dancing and then all these dances from like the 20s, 30s and 40s because Betty was a, a happy drunk and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, Chase uh, kind of incorporated all that into the dancing. But again, I was, I asked for extra 
extra um, time. I said, I need a dance call every day so that I can do this because I'm really terrified. And I'm sure that, you know, I don't want to be a time sucker or anything, but I said, I'll come in beforehand. I don't care. I just need plenty of rehearsal. I always ask for more rehearsal. When I was doing Squeamish, I did, I did that one and a half hour piece three times every day before I went on stage. Every oh my God, day. wow. It was a dark place to be for a long time. But until I got that cake for Betty Ford from uh, uh, Tony Leslie James, once I put the cape on, I'm like, I'm Betty Ford. I'm mm. Betty Ford, man. Watch me twirl that cape. Mm. And when I look at the pictures, and, and, and realize how brilliant Tony was to make it out of that polyester that's just, I mean, the cape does most of the work. Mm. The cape, it's just brilliant. And um, I, I have to, hats off to her, I mean, and to Chase, and of course to the, my, I mean, I'm sorry, Michael John McHugh is, a, is the most. Yeah, I mean, he, we love him here. We, uh, we, we absolutely. So much, and I am yep. so grateful him for putting me in that piece and i would be remiss if we didn't ask you about the secret garden because that is just the gift that keeps on giving to the world isn't it yeah i get money every every month from people listening to hold on and of course it's it's an amazing song and very anthemic and i remember after 9-11 i mashed it up with america the beautiful and it was just so mm -hmm. appropriate. And like when you see a yeah. man raging and he's jealous and he fears that you'll walk through walls, he's hid behind for years. So it was like Osama bin Laden's that guy. And uh, I think in many ways it's very uh, appropriate to, you know, what's happening in our government today and yeah. health, health crisis. And uh, so many people contact me saying that's getting me through the day. Mm. You know, God bless you. You know, like, thank you. Thank you for saying that. But again, I think that births like that are difficult. And Secret Garden was a difficult birth. It was. It was like, because if I think my character is not being treated well, I will say it. And, you know, I'll try not to be rude about it. But if I really feel passionately about it, I won't give up. I'm a dog with a bone. What did, what did you want to see happen that was not happening? Well, for example, I felt like um, I felt the blocking for Hold On was not right because it was very static. I was just sitting uh, next to Daisy, you know, kind of hugging her and comforting her. And this, the song just wasn't landing. And then, you know, and I, I have to say that, you know, certain people were wonderful, I, like, I said to, um, uh, I think I said it to Heidi Landisman when we were working on uh, Fine White Horse. I said, how come I can't have, how come the kid can't have a, a real rocking horse? And then she could be rocking and we could do some fun walking with the kid rocking. And she said, oh, that's a great idea. And she put a rocking horse, a white rocking horse in the, the, the little girl's bedroom. And then all of a sudden we, that came that made me come up with the idea of, you know, we can put her on the horse, we can rock it too fast. And uh, it was a lot of fun. But hold on, it just wasn't landing. Even though, Sarah, uh, I mean, um, uh, oh God, Michael 
Kozarin, the brilliant uh, music director, had come up with a wonderful ending for it, um, for Lucy's great song, uh, Lucy and uh, Marsha's great song. And, uh, but it wasn't landing. And I just, one day, and this was the big mistake I made, the big mistake I made was saying, it out loud in front of people. And you know, there were people in the audience. And I'm like, oh my God, she should be packing the trunk. You know, the little girl is gonna be sent away to that horrible school, the Scottish school. I should be packing all the pretty clothes she's been wearing. I should be packing the, uh, the jump rope that I gave her in the first scene. I should be packing the doll. And I got very, emotional about it because I knew it was a slam dunk. I knew it. And it, it went in and it was a slam dunk. And uh, I don't think that I did it in the most diplomatic way. I, <laughs> I, I don't think I did. And I regret that very much. But your your job is to protect your character. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And I did. And uh, it's in the script now. And ah, you see? Yeah, you, you should be. I mean, it, it was a beautiful performance. I have to ask you: Was Hold On um, already there when you when you signed on for it, or was that something that they wrote during the rehearsal process? No, it was not there. Um, uh, <laughs> I said something really cheeky to Lucy, I, I believe, because I had another song in in the place of, of Hold On. I can't even remember what it was, but it was it was very similar in tone to. Uh, if I had a fine white horse, it was like, try la 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 be happy, you know, something like that. I can't remember it, but, uh, but it was another ditty song. And I said to Lucy, oh, you know, I think maybe my character should only have one ditty, not two. And I think that at that point, uh, they got the idea for Hold On. And again, because my voice is a peculiar voice, it's not a traditional musical theater voice, it's much more folk pop uh, oriented it's some even country and of course lucy's whole score was very you know celtic and um uh she really liked my singing like she likes john cameron mitchell's uh voice who's again it's very folk rock you know one of these brilliant singer and um oh well the way i, I got the part i was pregnant and David Loud was the uh, music director at the time. And they were, I think they were doing the first version of it uh, that was, was done in Virginia Regret or something like that, Virginia Stage. And Mickey Clark wound up playing my part, but then they replaced everybody from there when they brought it for the Broadway workshop. So I, uh, uh, David Loud said, I was pregnant. I was almost, you know, eight months pregnant. And David Loud said, you got to sing. you got to sing for Lucy Simon. She'll love your voice. And I said, what are you talking about? Look at me, David. I don't have any music with me. And also, look at me. I'm pregnant. And I can do voiceovers. I can do shows. And he said, just come in. And uh, I said, all right, well, what will I sing? Uh, okay, I'll sing. I'll sing, um, on a summer's day in the month of May, a burly little bum came a hiking, traveling down that lonesome road, he was looking for his lichen. He was searching for land that was far away, beside them crystal fountains. I'll see all this coming for in the big rock candy mountains. And I went and sang a whole thing, it's one of my favorite songs. And how did I know she had already written 
fine white horse, which is perfect. Very, it's very like similar in tone. So I think she remembered my voice, and uh, you know, I can I can do the Yorkshire accent, and uh, and they offered me the uh, I didn't audition for the Broadway. Um, the Broadway. Just got the offer. I got the offer. Um, I wanted to ask you about Gypsy. I wanted to ask you about this. Well, so Arthur, Arthur, Kevin, were you going to well, ask Because earlier at the start, you said Arthur Lawrence just called you up and said, hey, you want to play? Yeah, you know, Arthur and I had an interesting um, friendship because he came to see Gunmetal Blues, a wonderful show, one of my favorite shows. I was doing it out at the George Street Playhouse. Mm-hmm. And um, I had, you know, it's a terrific little show. And one of my costumes, I was like a, a four days noir um, you know, brittle secretary. And I had this fabulous uh, peignoir. And at one point, I had a gun, a little, you know, girl gun, a Nancy Reagan gun. <laughs> and I had a garter. Um, and the gun fit in the garter. And <laughs> Arthur came to see it because he's a great, great friend of uh, uh, David, my dear friend, David Saint, who runs the Georgia House and is now responsible for Arthur's um, estate. Mm. And uh, he came up to me afterwards and he said, I got to tell you something. That gun is sexy. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, what? Oh, okay, <laughs> hello. There was this, uh, uh, the gun and the, and the holster, that was sexy. And uh, he said, you know, you make a great Tessie tour. <laughs> you like, I'm going to do it with Patty LaFont. You want to be Tessie tour? And I'm like, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, that's going to happen. Yeah, right. Okay. And sure enough, it happened. And he just said, we start rehearsals at such and such a time. But again, I I had some sparring with him there too. Because Well, he's kind of notorious too. At least you guys were friends beforehand. Yeah. But he's he's yeah, famous he's for it. One. And uh, you know, a lot of people say he picks somebody to pick on. And I got picked on. And I think it's because I tried to do something that... I don't think it's been done before, at least not to my knowledge. I wanted Tessie to, uh, Tessie's a real person. Tessie was in actuality uh, the seamstress and then ultimately dresser for Gypsy Rosalie and really companion. Oh, wow. Um, They thought of Tessie Tour, who was kind of a fat alcoholic stripper. Yeah. Uh, And uh, she, she regarded Tessie as more of a sister to her than than uh, Baby June than June was, mm-hmm. but I wanted her to be Texan. I, I thought that I, I thought she she talked black by that because <laughs> she was from Texas and she's her real name on the stripping circuit was Tessie Tura, the Texas twirler, and um, you know because you twirl like that mm-hmm. tassels, and uh, he put up with it for four days and then he said no. <laughs> And, and then all of a sudden, I was like, I, I have nothing. Yeah, like, what now? I, I have nothing. What do I do now? And I think what happened was I allowed my anger at him to feed into what he called the best Tessie Tour he'd seen. And he, he said that in his last book. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe he actually said that. Because he just wanted me to be mad as hell. <laughs> and my Tessie got more and more angry the angrier i was at him but there was one night 
that I, I had, again, Marty Paglin in it. I, God bless him. He's passed, but he's a brilliant costume designer. And once I got that costume on, I'm like, got it. I got it. I know what she is now. I know what she is. And I know that she's this sad, aging, angry woman who's going to probably lose her job any second and has no options. And uh, I, uh, I had these long wings. And at one point, um, they, 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 they had uh, these, you know, like, I think they were eight foot wings on either side. They were huge. And there was a, a, a rod in there, like a, like a bamboo rod or plastic or something like that. And Laura Benanti was sitting on a, a bench. And after, uh, you, uh, what is the name of that song? You got it, yeah, gimmick. Uh, which in our version was famously turned towards uh, Laura. We did it to, not to the audience presentationally, we did it to Laura. And afterwards, there's a blackout and, you know, we exit. And I felt my rod hit something and I thought I put Laura's eye out. Mm. And I'm like, holy God. And I was already so rattled. I think this was during dress rehearsals or something. Um, yeah, it was dress rehearsals or previous or something. And I, I ran around to the other side of the stage to find out if I had hurt her. And I missed my next entrance. I missed it. I missed the little, it meets you around the corner. I missed it. And the poor little girl is out there and she just kind of looks around and leaves. And I'm like, holy Christ. And I think Sondheim was there. And I'm like, oh, you know, I might as well just give it up. And I knew that he was going to be so furious with me because we've been like this, you know. I mean, you never fight back with Arthur. You know, you just kind of sit there and take it. Take it, yeah. <laughs> But I, afterwards, I was like in tears. I was like, I, 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 I got to quit the show. I, 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 I got to quit. So uh, I was given the message that he was waiting for me on the loading dock of City Center. So dramatic. Like, holy Christ. So in my very, very best Padre Pio in, in uh, impression, now, Padre Pio is that, martyr and there's a famous statue of him holding mm -hmm. up his arms waiting for the uh, firing squad to to shoot him it's it's sort of iconic and i just i <laughs> i stepped foot on that loading dock and i put my arms out and i said fire me <laughs> and then he god bless arthur god i miss him so much he just like like Steam is coming out of his mouth and his nose and his blood is coming out of his ears. And he's so angry. And he just looks at me and he goes, God damn it, now I can't. True <laughs> <laughs> wow. story. Wow. That's funny. Uh, and then we got along with Kenny Plasters. I love it. I had to. <laughs> So funny. This was oh Allison. This this has been such a pleasure with you today. Oh, I cannot no, even begin to tell you how much we appreciate you taking oh, the time God. out to talk to us. It's so much fun. Oh. oh, really a pleasure. You're such a joy, and it's just thank you for being so honest and so yeah. open. And uh, you, your students are lucky students. Anyone yes. who gets to work with you is lucky. But my goodness, I feel like I love my students, man. I love my students. Same. Yep. 
Same. I, I feel like I got a masterclass today. Yeah. Allison, thank you so, so much. Everyone, we'll see you next time. That's all, folks. Today's episode was recorded at Shetler Studios on 244 West 54th Street. Visit Shetler Studios to book your room today, and you could be as cool as us. That's S-H-E-T-L-E-R studios.com. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And... Friends, don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you guys can come in and help us out. Yes, in order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. The more ratings, the more they'll come up in searches. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us one star and make us feel as bad as Annie did in that weird production in Boston where Annie dreamed about being adopted and then ended the show back in the orphanage. True story, Rob was there. I saw it. So (laughs) head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.